This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program, The Tuesday Show. Hey, and since it's Tuesday, we'll have an some so we can get right to uh, the questions you've sent in or your phone calls. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, stuff going on in this crazy nation that we're living in. Whatever's on your heart or mind, all you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free by dialing 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Um, banner at the top of the screen will come up. says, call now, hit that. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer and everything else then can be hands-free and you will be safe. Our main number, one more time, is 340-9585. Let me go right to the questions. Uh, first one is from Ruben. I don't think it's our Ruben because he usually just calls, but this is another Ruben. Uh, Pastor Ron, what is the sin unto death? Um, Ruben, it's hard to explain. The sin unto death is a sin that a Christian would commit um, that could be so bad um, that God judges him with physical death. He's not going to be judged eternally, but he would be judged physically. In our Bibles, in Acts chapter 5, we have an example of this, Ananias and Sapphira. Um, if you accept that they were Christians, and I've always sort of vacillated between whether they're believers or unbelievers, um, I, I, my tendency is to, to believe they were they were real believers, but their heart wasn't right. And they sinned unto death. God killed them for hypocrisy being entered in being entered in into um, God's pure church, his brand new church. So that's just one example. Uh, Reuben, I've known some people who uh, I believe were believers uh, but, but slid back into a, uh, a, an immoral lifestyle in one case, it was homosexuality. In the other case uh, of the people I know, uh, it was back into a drug addiction. And uh, I think, um, and, and I don't mean this in the way it's going to sound. I just don't know the way to say it. I think God judged them. I think God took them out. And, and I think the idea there is to protect their witness, to protect um, them from being compromised to others. So it, it's a little complicated, but it's, it's a sin that is so grievous that the punishment is death. Reuben, I don't know if you remember now, we've been in Texas now for 25 years, um, and, and I don't know how long ago it was, but there was a, uh, a woman um, named Carla Faye Tucker. She was a, um, um, a drug addict. She, she committed a heinous murder, and she was sentenced to, to death in Texas. And when we got here, uh, she was uh, about to be um, executed. And the problem was that in the many years it took to get to that execution, um, she had become a born-again believer, a, a woman who loved Jesus. It was obvious. And her life in prison bore a lot of fruit. Uh, the guards wanted her not to be put to death. I mean, she, she just bore so much fruit. Um, but she took 
human lives. And um, I think uh, she was willing to die. She knew she deserved to die. She was waiting to meet Jesus. She was still afraid, but she was waiting to meet Jesus. But I think it was just one of those cases where there was a sin that was committed that was so bad that it had to be punished, and that is the ultimate punishment in this life. Uh, And, of course, uh, in Carla Faye Tucker's case, she would have stepped right into um, the presence of Jesus in eternity, and, and that would have been her reward. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Ruben. Rick wants to know, will people who are mentally challenged automatically go to heaven? Um, Rick, I don't know exactly what you mean by mentally challenged, but 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 people with um, deficiencies, people that don't understand, the answer is yes. You know, we're only going to be accountable for what we do with what we know. And there are people who don't have the, the, the mental capacity to understand the wrong they're doing nor the right thing to do. And um, there will be people who will be judged on a different scale than others. And I think the mentally handicapped, I think those who uh, are unable to uh, understand or communicate, uh, I think, yes, those people will automatically go to heaven. Um, Now, that's not a blanket statement in the sense that that most mentally challenged people um, um, are, are able to make decisions. We've got people in our church who know and love Jesus and they don't really understand much else. They don't understand much about the transaction, but um, they they love the Lord. So remember, God is only going to judge. He's a just judge. And he's only going to judge those people who um, made free will choices to rebel against God. So uh, if you have uh, a mentally impaired um, family member, when that person dies, uh, the, the probability is that they will immediately go into the presence of the Lord. Only God knows exactly what they know and how accountable they are. We don't. But remember, Rick, the character, the nature of God. God is uh, slow to anger. He's abounding in love. And he's going to be fair. And he's going to be just. And that's what we've got to remember. Good question, Rick. Thank you very, very much. Uh, here is an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, I know some people who have made professions of faith, but who have no fruit or change in their lives at all. Are they false converts? Anonymous, I touched on this with a question in yesterday's program. Um, we don't know. It's not our purview to judge. Uh, we can look at the fruit of their lives, and we can say that's good fruit, or we can say that's bad fruit. And when I, as a pastor now, and remember, I've got, 25 years worth of equity in a lot of people's lives, um, I can say things. Somebody says, well, I'm a Christian. I can say, well, but, but you're, you're, you're living in sin. You're blaspheming God. You're, you're doing things you know you ought not to do. What makes you think you're a Christian? I can say that, and that's not judging them. That's just me trying to communicate to them that they need to examine their heart. You know, that you answer an altar call or that you get baptized or that you were raised in church. None of that saves you. So when people have no fruit, two things I know for sure are true. The first thing is that they have no sense of security in their eternal condition. The Bible is specifically written in the Spirit of God, of course, who wrote the Bible, lives in our hearts. And when you're living in sin, when you're separated from God by your behavior, there's no possible way to be secure. We get a lot of questions about eternal security. I, I'm the most secure guy in the world. I know where I'm going. I know every day that I get up, I'm in the will of God. I know these things for sure, but if I start rebelling against God, all of that security, all of that comfort's going to go away. So when people have no fruit in their lives, there's no security. There's no peace in their lives. That's the first thing. The second thing, that we know for sure is that if they're living like unbelievers, it's best for those of us who are in Christ to treat them as unbelievers. We don't want to provide any comfort for them in their sin. You know, people will still come to church and it's sort of a, a, a panacea. They, they'll come to church and they'll sing the songs. They'll maybe get a goosebump or two. 
And I think, okay, God's still with me. Um, but, but we who are believers, we need to call people out. You say you're a believer, but this is the way you talk. Or you say you're a believer, this is the way you treat your wife, or this is the way you treat your husband. You say you're a believer, but, and you can fill in the blank. And we can't give them any false sense of security. At the same time, I'll sum it up anonymous with this, we cannot say for sure they're false converts. Do not judge. That's what Jesus meant when he told us not to judge. He said, if you judge, you might be judged yourself. Um, I talked yesterday on the program with regard to a similar question about the wheat and the tares. Um, The wheat and the tares look exactly the same to the human eye. And if we start tearing out what we think are tares, Jesus said himself that you're going to tear out some some real kernels of wheat as well. And if you if if you, if, you, if you're insisting on judging, you're going to make some false judgments. So what we do is we simply leave that to God. We pray for those people. One of the things that's hard for us, anonymous, is 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 really committing people like this to prayer. People that have made professions of faith. Jesus takes it so seriously. And people that make professions of faith, God is going to chase them to the end. We know that. And we have a tendency, instead of praying for them, anticipating that moment when they stand before Jesus to be judged either for their salvation or for the works that they committed. And again, only God knows that. It's going to be a terrible time. And we need to really pray. We get angry with people. We get frustrated or impatient with people like this. But what we need to do instead is really pray for them. And then when we have the opportunity, witness to them. I love witnessing the people who are producing bad fruit. I'll tell them about Jesus. I know all that. I know all that. Yeah, but what are you going to do with Jesus? He offered to forgive you. I'm a Christian. And I like to be able then to say, well, how would I know that? More importantly, how do you know that if this is the way you're living? And Jesus said people who live like this, he said it through the Apostle Paul, people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. How do you know that? What makes you think that you're going to go to heaven? And at least that gives them something to think about, and the Holy Spirit will keep sort of knocking on the door of their heart. So pray for them and share with them. But don't get angry and don't get frustrated. Sometimes when our hearts hurt, it's easy to cross that line into anger and frustration, isn't it? Good question. Hey, the phones are quiet. They've been quiet yesterday and today, and they were a little quiet Friday, so we love your calls, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Patrick says, what will Jesus look like when he returns in judgment? Um... Patrick, one of my favorite things to do is to imagine what Jesus looks like. Now, we've got some help in the Bible. Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 19, we're we're given the description of our holy God. And and Jesus, we're told, uh, his face will be shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. His eyes will be like fire. That's the fire of holy judgment. His hair will be white like wool. That's a picture of of, uh, of holiness and righteousness. Uh, He'll have a golden sash uh, around his his chest. Um, That's a statement of deity. He will speak to us with a voice that sounds like many rushing waters. So that's what he's going to look like physically. And I can't wait for that moment when I get to see him. I I just, I'm hesitating because I, I, I get lost thinking about that. But Patrick, when he comes in judgment, Revelation 19 says he's also going to become coming wearing a white robe, and on his robe and on his thigh is going to be written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His robe will be dipped in the blood of those who rebel against him. That means that white robe will be soiled by the blood of his enemies. And that's what judgment is. It's God judging a Christ-rejecting world. And Jesus is going to do that when he comes. 
The Bible says he's going to be coming on, on a white horse. I don't think it's a literal horse, Patrick. I think it's it's a metaphor. Um, uh, horses were what kings rode in times of war. That's why we, we use the old phrase war horse. You remember when Jesus came the first time into Jerusalem during the triumphal entry, he was riding a, a, a beast of peacetime, a donkey, a foal. But he's going to be riding this horse again. I think it's a metaphor, not a literal horse. And he's going to destroy his enemies with a word. And that event is going to usher in the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth when everything returns. So that's what he's going to look like. And, um, you know, Patrick, we'll be just like him. We won't have robes dipped in blood, but we'll have resurrected bodies just like he has. Good question. Thanks very, very much. Here is a question from Nacho from our email inbox. Uh, Other than Luke, is there any other Gentile to have written a book of the Bible? Is there a significance to Luke as a Gentile in writing his? Um, Nacho, he's the only Gentile other than... Now, remember that that Nebuchadnezzar wrote a chapter, chapter 4. There are uh, a few chapters in Daniel, two and a half chapters, I think, in Daniel that are written by Gentiles. But um, generally speaking, Luke is the only Gentile to have written a book of the Bible. Uh, Ruth did not write her book. Uh, The book is about her. She, of course, was a Gentile, a Moabitess. Uh, But uh, in the rest of the the Bible, um, they're either Jews or Christians, God's servants, who are writing um, the Bible that we read. Uh, and as to whether there's a significance to Luke in writing his, uh, I think the biggest significance, Nacho, with Luke is that he was a, a an eyewitness account of the things that he wrote. I think it's in Acts chapter 14 or 15 when Luke joins Paul's company. So he's there. Now, Luke, Luke, Luke is so much more than a doctor. He's a Gentile, he's a physician, uh, but he's a historian, he's a journalist, uh, and, and he spent a lot of time around many of the great saints of God. He spent a lot of time getting eyewitness accounts. That's why he could write the Gospel of Luke and then follow it with the second act, the Book of Acts. And um, the, the, the power and the authority of him being an eyewitness account. The, the, the word we is used uh, when, when Luke actually joins Paul's group. And, and Luke is going to be with him at the end. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says uh, to, uh, to Timothy, only Luke is with me. Everybody else deserted him, but only Luke is still with me. So Luke was really, really faithful. You know, Nacho, one thing I'd recommend, and I don't know where you could find it now, but there was a movie out a year and a half or so ago, maybe two years ago, uh, and it was it was the title was Paul, and and, and um, um, it, the the movie did a wonderful job of of examining the relationship between Luke and Paul. Um, there's some things in it that were eh, maybe not as correct as they ought to be, but but there's such a big uh, study to do that is so comprehensive. That, that I think they, they just combined some things. But um, book did, the, the, that movie did a really good job of, of examining the depth of that relationship between Luke and Paul. Uh, another thing that it did was it demonstrated that Paul was alone in his suffering. Luke also suffered a great deal. So I hope that um, makes sense to you. Thank you, Nacho, for the question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. James asks, when people refuse to give to or serve their church, what does it say about their faith? James, I would say it demonstrates most of all that their, their faith at best is immature. At best. Um, for a Christian not to serve. I'm assuming every Christian has read John chapter 13 or will read John chapter 13. Jesus set an example for us. 
So, so Christians need to be a part of the church so they can serve the church. Anything else is nothing more than being selfish. So when, when somebody refuses to serve their church, then that demonstrates not only an immature faith, but a very selfish faith, a, a faith that is focused on, on the, the, the believer instead of on our Savior. So that's really important. Uh, refusing to give is, is only a matter of faith. So I would say that's more of a commentary on the lack of depth in their faith. Um, while serving might be a commentary on the lack of depth in their love, uh, refusing to give is um, um, a commentary on their, their, their lack of faith. Um, until we understand that everything that we have belongs to God, everything that we ever will have belongs to God, we really don't understand what he's done for us. And people usually get frustrated with me, James, when I put it that way. But, you know, when you, when you understand that God gave everything for you, how much should we give to him? I mean, why should we give short of everything? And that's what Romans 12 says. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And that's the totality of who you are. And when someone refuses to give, um, either their heart is wrong, or their faith is weak, uh, or they're just selfish, which also indicates how immature and incomplete their faith is. So, uh, James, if you're talking about somebody that you care about, sit them down with the Bible open and talk to them about giving and talk to them about serving. See, when we give our hearts to Jesus, everything then has to be about him. Everything in our lives has to be about him. Now, here's what I would suggest you do. Sit down with this person and say, what's your problem with giving? Or what's your problem with serving? And if somebody replies, well, it's my money and you don't have enough to go around, so I just feel like I'm going to be short of money, then talk to them about trusting God. Talk to them about sowing and reaping. Don't make any foolish prosperity church promises, but talk to them about the principle of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. God says that, that, that our money is, is a, a measure of our commitment to him. Churches require money to survive. So either they're selfish or they're immature. Maybe, James, maybe they're just brand new in the Lord and they haven't learned yet. So just talk to them, teach them, and pray for them. And let the Holy Spirit work. The idea of not serving is, um, is more crucial to me than not giving. We all ought to be serving our church all the time. You know, uh, we're here, here at Calvary Chapel. We're going through a little bit of a difficult time, and we've never we've never been through this before. We've always had more people serving than we needed. Always, just the, the Lord has blessed us so richly with people with with servants' hearts. I mean, they they just want to serve. They don't have to be asked. They don't have to be prodded. We don't have to sign commitment sheets or anything like that. Um, the, the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. And and uh, people just, that's the heart that you develop when you surrender to Christ. Uh, with the COVID-19 and the long-term quarantine, and now that people are coming back, we've got some people who are still afraid. And they're not comfortable coming back. We had uh, quite a few seniors who were serving and I love that we need seniors serving, especially in children's ministries or or um, gender-specific ministries, men's or women's ministries, because they have so much to offer. And some of those people simply can't come back because they're in 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 a compromised health position, and and we want to protect them, and they want to be protected. So I'm not talking about those people, but some of those people not being able to come back yet is created some holes for service that that uh, we've just never had in the past and we need to fill those holes. Now, we're, we're still not begging people to serve, but uh, the idea is that this is your church, you need to serve, and uh, those are all kinds of things that you can talk about. Here is a related question. Do I have enough time to get a question? I've got about two minutes. Um, here's a related question to James. This is anonymous. Uh, if I don't give in church, and in parentheses, he or she wrote, I need my money, I couldn't give cheerfully, is my relationship with God affected? 
um, uh, anonymous, most surely your relationship with God is affected. Um, if you think you need your money so you couldn't give it cheerfully, then you don't understand. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so this is one of the things where you say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you because this is what you said you would do. And here's what I can promise you. If you will give with the right heart, give obediently, even if your heart's not right, there may not be a reward for it, but at least God will be able to work on you. Uh, If that's the case, then um, um, just challenge God to show you it's better. I'm going to come back to this on the other side of the break. We've got 30 minutes left, and we would love your phone calls, 340-9585 or toll-free 77630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. I want to go back to uh, a minute with Anonymous who said, if I don't give in church and then parentheses, I need my money. Anonymous, your whole focus is wrong. It's not your money. God gave you the ability to work. He gave you the ability, the talents you have that would make you um, worth paying. Um, God says, give me your time. Give me your talent. Give me your treasure. So you've got to start looking at, at everything that you've been blessed with as belonging to God and, and to be used for His glory. And just the idea that you would say, I need my money thus you couldn't give cheerfully, indicates that there's really a problem with your heart. You know, I tell the church here from time to time, we don't talk about money a lot, only when we're teaching through the Bible and it comes up. But if you check your calendar and your checkbook, that'll show you who you really love. What you spend your money on It's where your heart really is. What you spend your time doing is where your heart really is. Jesus gave everything for you. He did it because he loved you. And this is just like saying, well, you know, I love you, Jesus. Thanks for saving me, but but leave my stuff alone. That betrays a, a, a complete lack of understanding about who he is and what he's done. Okay. I never want anybody to feel guilty about this thing of giving. We we have a tendency in the church of Jesus Christ in these days to make people feel guilty and try to get them to dig deep. It's never my intent. But let me tell you, I've been rich in this world, and I have been poor. And being poor with Jesus is infinitely better than having more money than you can possibly spend. Here is a phone call from Jeff Online One. Jeff, thanks for bailing me out. You're on the air. <laughs> I'm bailing you out, <laughs> Pastor Ron. I can't bail you out. I'm just talking too much. No, I think Sam could bail you out, but better yet, Paula could bail you out. And she has many times. <laughs> and she will again on Thursday, no doubt. <laughs> That's right. How are you, my dear pastor friend? I'm doing well. Believe it or not, and this is a little more about me than anybody needs to know, but I think I'm having a, an allergic reaction to ma- my mask. And my lips oh. are swollen and sore, and it's just horrible. But other than that, I'm doing great, Jeff. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, and, well, I, and next Monday, I will have the privilege of saying that Sam is exactly two months older than me. 
<laughs> Sit your sights higher. That's right. <laughs> Pastor, yesterday you were talking about, um, I appreciate when you say that nothing is good in extreme. And I wondered mm-hmm. if you would talk a little bit about um, our responsibility uh, for our families, for the future, for saving. You know, there's a lot of Christians that stockpile lots of food and water and, and supplies. And then I know some that are very extreme and have, you know, a pantry the size of their bedroom. Um, and then they say part of that is to, you know, help serve the community or, or our neighbors. And I appreciate that, too. But just where should we be in the balance? Uh, because even secular economists are talking now and saying, you know, you really need to have six to eight weeks of rations because of the way the economy is. And how should we respond as believers and also within our church community? And, uh, hey, Jeff, thank, your- thank you. That That's yeah. that's a rich, rich subject. A couple of things. As Christians, and, and, and I think we, we forget this. Um, I was referring to the, the, the previous question about somebody who didn't want to give. Um Everything begins with us realizing that everything we have belongs to the Lord. So it's our responsibility as Christians to ask him how to spend our money. If we're walking with Jesus, then he's going to keep us from those dangerous extremes. You know, I would have thought, Jeff, that Y2K now 20 years ago uh, would have would have completely solved the problem of hoarding um, for Christians uh, because there were a whole bunch of Christians that, that ended up with egg on their face um, because they they had all this water and all of these dry foods, and they were just sure everything was going to fall apart. Uh, and of course, it didn't happen. Jesus is holding it all together. So that's one of those things that I think we can walk in wisdom, but at the same time, without considering Jesus, there is no wisdom. And we're prone to extremes. That's just the nature. You can see that in our political discourse in this country. And sadly, I'm talking about Christians as well. Um, you know, it's all or nothing. And it's never that way with Jesus. Extremes are bad. Extremes are what the devil exploits in our lives. So in the case that you're speaking of, um, you know, there's based on what we've been through in this last eight months uh, with with COVID, um, you know, I think it makes sense to have some water stashed. I think it makes sense to have some toilet paper stashed. Uh, I, I think we need to be able to survive in our homes for a few days if, if you know, foods become short. Um, but, but the one thing we don't want to do is we don't want to let fear impact our faith. And one of the most practical things about walking with Jesus is he directs your steps. And I think what we, we try to do is direct our own steps and we try to do what is prudent. And, and just if if I could have one minute with every Christian, I'd just tell them, look, trust God with the things that you need. Don't try to figure out on your own what to do or how to do it. Trust God with your need. Jesus said um, to his disciples, he said, you know, I've been with you. I've protected you. Uh, you didn't have a sword. You didn't have a bag, meaning money. But now I'm going away, so get a bag and, and buy a sword. Jesus prepared them for the tough times that were coming along. And likewise, Jeff, he will do the same thing for us if we just give him the opportunity. The moment we start making our own plans, I think the Lord sort of snickers in heaven and changes things up. I just just don't see any value. We're to live for the day. We're to plan for the future. We want to leave um, our our wives. We men, we, we want to leave our wives in a good position financially. If we leave, that's why the value of life insurance and, and having a savings, uh, having a, a will that uh, that has been executed, um, um, all of those things matter. I, I've seen a lot of widows left in horrible positions over my 25 years here uh, by by men who love God. And, and if you're asking God what to do, he'd say, take care of her. Love her the way Christ loved the church. And so what we have to do is we've got to take care of those people that he's given us stewardship over. And uh, if we'll do that, then God will take care of the other details. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added unto you. I think, Jeff, when you 
uh, describe the situation uh, that you did, I think we're, we're seeking our own safety or comfort first. Again, be wise, be prudent, but at the same time never dismiss the need to walk by faith and to walk in the presence of the Lord. That's a good question. If I was talking to somebody today in a, in a counseling vein, I'm talking to them about um, um, mortgage cancellation insurance. Um, you know, if you're going to buy a new home, uh, that's a great thing. But at the same time, uh, have a, an insurance policy on your life so that if if something happens to you, God forbid, then your wife won't be stuck with this big mortgage. And so those are the kind of things that we need to do. But um, the idea of, of stocking things uh, up um, and then rationalizing and saying, well, you know, we're doing this for our neighbors too. I think that's a, a little bit incongruous. I don't think that's completely honest. Jeff, good question. Thank you very, very much. Um, Kent wants to know, how can someone genuinely dealing with gender dysphoria make a decision about who or what they really are? Um, Kent, I don't mean this to sound the way I know it's going to sound. Um, nobody has to have gender dysphoria or gender confusion um, and uncertainty about who or what they are um, if they will agree to be who God made them to be. You see, gender dysphoria, gender identity is another way of putting it. It's all about how we feel. You know, we all have grown up with people who uh, we called girls tomboys and we, we called boys worse things if they were effeminate growing up. Um, but, but, you know, we all wanted to be somebody else. Uh, there's so many teenagers who are so confused and so discouraged or depressed that they want to be anything or anyone else. They want to be loved. They want attention. And this is a way to get it. And and I understand that's how people feel. However, how we feel is irrelevant. How we feel is only important if our goal is to be happy. If our goal is as it should be, to be full of God's Spirit, to be pleasing to Him, and, and to be pleasing to him then all we have to do is decide to be who God made us to be so I'm going to be really blunt how can someone genuinely dealing with gender dysphoria make a decision take off your clothes look in the mirror and be who God made you to be accept it embrace it and put away once and for all that you're less than you want to be or you feel like something else, none of that matters. Be who God made you to be. Now, in the last few years, saying what I just said will make so many people angry. But those people are angry, they're confused, their lives are a mess. They're emotionally and physically unstable. And what we want to do is provide the stability and the peace of God. And the way you do that is to accept who God made you to be. Our feelings don't make us who we really are. Who we really are, what gender we identify with, needs to be conformed to whom God made us at birth. It's that simple. And that eliminates all confusion. Nothing else will ever eliminate the confusion. That's the only thing, Kent. So I hope that makes sense and hope you're not angry with me, but that's just telling the truth in love. Fred says, who are some of your current role models in pastoral ministry? Fred, there's, I have a lot. Um, um, Tony Evans, um, is is um, um, a man who's blessed me abundantly. I don't know Tony at all, um, but uh, Tony lost his wife of uh, I think forty nine years or something this year. Um, and you know, um, from from a distance, um, I watch the people that I listen to. I watch to see how they put their faith in action. And Tony has been a model of godly consistency, 
Uh, he's been honest and open with his um, grieving. Um, at the same time, he's never taken a step backwards. He keeps doing what he was called by God to do. Uh, he's not thought about quitting. I'm, I'm sure the enemy has brought it up at times, but he is resolved that he's going to, as long as he's here, uh, walk um, in the calling that God has given his life. And I so admire that. I admire people who practice what they preach. You know, when when somebody loses a, a family member, especially a spouse, a long-term marriage, uh, I, I don't know what I would do without Paula, but, but I know this, I, I wouldn't fall apart. Jesus would hold me up. Likewise, Paula wouldn't fall apart if something happened to me. Um, Tony Evans has just been a model of godly consistency. I happen to think he is a great preacher. He's so different than I am. Uh, he actually has a personality. Um, uh, and I wouldn't do, I'm not called to do ministry the way he does ministry. But he does it with integrity. He has a great reputation doctrinally. He has been consistent for many, many, many years that I've been sort of observing. And uh, um, I just love the integrity of his ministry and I love the, the effect of his ministry. Uh, another one is uh, Charles Stanley. I talked about him um, with a phone call last week that we had. Um, Charles Stanley is somebody that I started listening to the minute I got saved. Uh, back then, he was on TV all the time. Now, remember, that was 29 years ago, and I looked at him, and he was old then. And I used to think, wow, this guy's old, but he can preach, and yes, he's consistent. I've listened to him now for these 29 years, and, and I actually think while well, the, the, the messages have less energy and there's less movement, uh, I think they're richer, as they should be for somebody who's been walking with the Lord along. He's been a pastor faithful for 50-plus years. And I so admire that long-term faithfulness. Um, in my younger days, Fred, I might have thought, well, this preacher has this style and this preacher has that style. And that would have been something that would have influenced me. But the older I get, the more impressed I am with, with just consistency and faithfulness. And these guys have been faithful. I'm also developing a, um, um, a new respect for um, some, some current role models for, for different reasons. Uh, um, uh, Calvary Chapel pastor named Jack Hibbs uh, for John MacArthur. And I'm not a John MacArthur fan doctrinally at all. But I'm watching these men risk a lot to take a stand for doing what's right, to minister to their people, to open their churches. They're, they're uh, both of them in California, and, and they're the objects of persecution, and, and the government has put a bullseye on their back, and they're trying to run them out. And they just can't. These guys have, have, have taken a stand. We're not closing. Um, they can tell us to do whatever they want, but the, the Bible says our Constitution gives us this right. So I'm, I'm developing a, a great respect for them. Uh, you know, I, I can only hope that I would be that faithful, Fred, if I was being persecuted, but, but I don't know if that's the case. Again, I hope it, it, it is. But here's guys who are, are, are putting their money where their mouth is. I mean, they're, they're really, really... Uh, taking a stand. And I've got a lot of guys, Gail Irwin that I talked about, uh, who is just one of the nicest men uh, who's ever lived, and, and as he's getting older, um, you know, it's hard to watch sometimes, but uh, it's just the integrity of his ministry has been second to none. So those are the kind of people that are, are my current role models, Fred. I like preaching styles. Um, I like Adrian Rogers. Uh, he's with Jesus, of course, um, but 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 mostly I'm 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 focused on those who are being faithful with what God has given them to do, and I want to finish well. And everybody in this audience, Fred, including you, uh, if you ever want to pray for Pastor Ron, the way you can pray is that I will finish better than I started. Thank you for the question. I like thinking about that. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is a question from Jonathan. 
He says, the Bible seems very clear about divorce being forbidden to Christians. Why is there so much divorce inside the church, and why do pastors like you permit it? Well, Jonathan, I don't recall anybody ever coming to me and asking me for my blessing to divorce. So I, I'm, I don't have the authority to make decisions for people. Uh, you're right. The Bible is very clear. Divorce is something God hates, something that, except in the case of adultery or physical abuse or abandonment, uh, it is forbidden. And yet Christians do it. And the Bible says that, that Jesus said that that um, um, Moses permitted a certificate of divorce because their hearts were hard. And the reason Christians are divorcing, Jonathan, is because their hearts are hard. It's that simple. You know, we'd like to think that I could just tell a Christian, somebody who's truly a believer, that, well, you know, God hates divorce, you can't do it. And they say, oh, okay. But people don't want to suffer. They don't want to be unhappy. They get to the end of their rope, and they start walking in the flesh instead of according to the Spirit. And when that happens, they're going to get divorced because we've just made it too easy. But believe me, I don't know any pastor that permits it or blesses it. And and I think that part of your question is just a little bit judgmental. It seems maybe you've had somebody divorce you and or you might be in that now and you're you you're wanting pastors to suddenly stop it. Let me ask you a question, Jonathan, and and apply this as it works for you or doesn't work. The Bible also says that husbands should love their wives the way Christ loved the church, giving themselves up for her. The Bible says that we're to be kind. It's a fruit of the Spirit. We tell Christians all the time to do those things, and yet they don't. And men are often the culprits. Why would she divorce me? God hates divorce. God hates you being a jerk for the last 15, 20 years, too. But that didn't change you. So this is one of those things where you need to get the perspective of the Holy Spirit on this issue. Look in your own heart. Don't look at the heart of other people. And this question is very much an indictment against people that you view as falling short. When if this is a personal situation for you, Jonathan, ask the Lord why you are in that position. Leave God to deal with the people that he loves. Hard hearts, that's always the reason. Okay, four minutes left in this program today. Here's an anonymous question. Is it okay for believers to use birth control in a marriage? Of course it is. Um, um, I know the position in the past anyway, I don't know about currently, I haven't looked it up. Catholic Church said that that was, that was a sin. It's not. Um, um, if you want to use birth control, the Bible is silent on this. This is a matter of conscience. Romans 14, 23 says that anything not of faith is sin. So, of course, it's okay for you to use birth control in a marriage. The only caution, and this is something that very few people um, truly understand. The caution is a husband and wife using birth control need to be sure that that's okay with God for their personal circumstance. God has a plan for you. If he wants to bless you with children, we know that every good and perfect gift comes from above. If God wants to bless you with a kid, are you willing to be blessed? What's your motive for wanting to use birth control? Is it, is it well, we, we want time together, we want to do things and have children later? Uh, maybe you don't want to have children at all. So here's what you do. You seek the Lord. God, what do you want? Remember, as believers... We have no right to our own opinions. So here's what we do. We simply say, Jesus, what's your plan for me? Is birth control okay? And I promise you the Holy Spirit will give you an answer. You read your Bible. You trust the Lord. You listen to the Spirit of God. And he'll give you an answer. And if his answer is yes, birth control is okay, then you can use it without any 
guilt at all. But what if he says, I want to shoot the child now. Can I just share this? I'll close today with this. Paula and I, she was pregnant when we got married. Uh, If she was not pregnant, our marriage never would have happened. Or if it happened, it never would have survived. God used a baby this many, 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 many years ago. It was it was an illegitimate child. God used that baby to keep us together. And then gave us another one after we got married. And those kids kept us together. We wouldn't have made it. And look at what we would have missed in the process. So sometimes God has a baby for somebody for a whole lot of reasons, reasons that we can't figure out. So, um, Anonymous, I hope that answers your question. Um, Seek the Lord. If he gives you the freedom to do it, go ahead and do it. Um, In the meantime, you and your wife, seek the Lord for his plan for your life. Good question. Uh, My next question, I don't have time today, is somebody who said, I just found out that one of our Bible study teachers at church is a Democrat. Should I stop attending the Bible studies? I can really talk about that one tomorrow because that's going to take some time. Hey, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and I am delighted to be able to come to you every day on AM 630, The Word, at 4 o'clock. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4. We will see you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Okay.